Welcome to this week's episode of Folklore, Food and Fairy Tales. As for the last three weeks, we'll have a similar format as we'll start a festive story and then we'll move straight on to the festive foodstuff and the history and stories and folklore associated with it. We're slightly different this week because the stories are actually three shorter stories which are lovely for this time of year. I hope you enjoy them. The stories the stories are Sir Clegus and the Christmas Cherries, the Christmas Tree Spiders, and finally, the Apple Tree Man. If you're comfortable, gentle listener, I'll begin. Our first story is Sir Clegus and the Winter Cherries. In the time when England was ruled by King Uther Prendragon, father of the famous King Arthur, lived a brave knight. His name was Sir Cleves. He was big and strong and noble and courageous and extremely generous. He could be that because he owned many lands and had a huge fortune. Unfortunately, as time passed, Sir Cleves lost all of his money due to his generosity. To the poor, Sir Cleves gave away as much gold as he could. He forgave the rents for his tenants who had a hard time and he lent money to people without expecting any repayment. He also had a beautiful wife, Dame Clarice. She was as kind and as generous as her husband. Every year, on Christmas Eve, Sir Cleves and his wife hosted a grand feast at their house. Many people attended this feast and no one would leave empty-handed. It was the party to go to. Over the years, his wealth dwindled, but he never gave up on his feasts and his gifts. And at last, he mortgaged all his lands when his gold and silver ran out. He knew, in the end, that things would work out for him. Eventually, he was only left with a small estate that held little value. His wife and his two children lived humbly, without any luxuries. This Christmas, he had no money for feasts and gifts. As he walked through his house, Sir Cleves felt miserable. He could hear music and happy laughs. And he gave thanks for the joy he felt during the time when years he hosted feasts to rich and poor, that those who dined at his table were short of nothing. On Christmas Day, Sir Cleves walked outside his house. He even knew that even though his situation was bad, there were many others who were suffering as well. He sat down under his favourite cherry tree, wondered if there was a way to help people, even in his current state. As he sat under the tree, he heard the rustling of the leaves. He looked up and saw the cherry tree was in full bloom, even on this cold winter day. He became very happy and picked a few cherries and took them home. His wife, indeed, was happy to see ripe cherries in winter. Cherries in winter, she explained. She suggested offering some to the king. I hear he's at Cardiff Castle presently. I'm sure he'd be amazed to see cherries at Christmas time. So Cleves agreed with his wife's plan. He went outside and picked out the very best cherries from the tree and decided to go to Cardiff Castle. Halfway to the castle, he realised he was not dressed properly. His clothes were dirty and had holes in them. He was disappointed and thought the king might not receive an ill-dressed man. I shall go, even though I'm not dressed like a knight. After all, I still am one. When he arrived at the castle, he did have some problems with persuading the guards to let him in. But eventually he got in and he was allowed to pass. Once inside the hall, Sir Cleves offered the basket of ripe cherries to the king. Miracle! It truly is a miracle, the king cried in surprise. Cherries in winter. Join us for dinner, Sir Cleves said, as he passed on the basket of cherries to everyone present in the hall. After dinner was done, the king asked what present did Sir Cleves want. I've only got one wish, your highness, said the poor knight. I want to be able to give to my people what I've always been able to do. But now I have so little money and lambs that I really can't do that. The king asked why Sir Cleves had allowed himself to get into such a poor state and wanted to know more about his request. Sir Cleves explained about his feasting and his Christmas gifts and his allowing of his tenants to not pay their rents. 
when they needed time to pay. The king agreed that this Christmas he would disperse to Sir Cleeg's people what Sir Cleeg's had always done before. Sir Cleeg's turned happy at last and left the castle, but he was called back. The king turned to Sir Cleeg's and said, I've been thinking, you deserve another reward for all the things you've done for your people and your lands over the years. You shall have new lands and control of this castle, but you must promise to be wise with your money. And so Sir Cleves made his promise to his king and returned home a wealthy and happy man. Our second story is the Christmas tree spiders. Have you ever looked at your Christmas tree with its beautiful tinsel sparkling and wondered who came up with the idea of decorating it in this way? Well, you need wonder no longer. Day before Christmas, as a small house in Germany underwent its Christmas Eve cleaning, the resident spiders, not wanting to be swept up with a broom, hid in the attic. When nightfall came and all were settled into bed, the spiders crept downstairs. To their amazement, in the middle of the living room was a beautifully decorated Christmas tree. They were so excited that they ran all over the tree. They scurried at the trunk and leapt from branch to branch. Unfortunately, that left their mark. A grey spider web now covered the whole tree. When the mother of the house came down the next morning, she saw the beautiful tree now covered in one huge grey spider web. She was sad and faced a dilemma. She knew that the children would be really disappointed to see their beautiful tree all wrapped in webs. But the spiders were so pleased with their handiwork, she didn't have the heart to take it down. What could she do? In order to give herself time to think about it, she opened the window to let in the first light of Christmas Day. And as the shafts of sun crept along the floor, it touched one of the threads of the spider web, and instantly the web was changed to gold and silver. When the children woke, they ran to the living room and saw their tree sparkling and glittering in the morning sun, and their delight was unsurpassed. They'd never seen such a beautiful tree. Only their mother knew what true Christmas miracle had occurred. And from that day, tinsel's become a treasured ornament for trees all over the world. And those who know the legend make sure they give thanks to the industrious spiders by hanging a beautiful silver or gold spider ornament in a prominent location on their tree. Our third story, and my personal favourite, is the Apple Tree Man. This tale took place in the west of England, in the county of Somerset, a place known for its wonderful apples. But we'll get to the apples later. Firstly, we must find out what this story affects. There were two brothers, and unusually at this time, the younger brother inherited all of their family's wealth, and the older brother inherited nothing. The brothers had never got on well, but this didn't improve the situation. The younger brother was incredibly mean with his inheritance, and he only gave his elder brother the crumbliest, smallest, rottenest cottage with an old, broken-down ox and an old, broken-down donkey and still charged him far too much rent. Nevertheless, the older brother was philosophical and counted his blessings and did what he could to toughen up the beasts, taking good care of them, allowing them to graze under the old apple trees near his cottage. Soon they were looking better than ever, and the trees were also burst into life again, with juicy fruits on every bough. But all this hard work didn't help when the younger brother came round wanting his rent for the terrible old cottage. When the older brother tried to explain how hard times were, 
The younger brother growled and sighed and whistled through his teeth, but made sure he always got his rent. Just before Christmas, the younger brother was by asking his brother for his rent again. And the older brother said that this year he just wasn't going to be able to manage it. It just wasn't possible. He hadn't been able to do enough to even feed himself properly. Right, said the younger brother. It's Christmas Eve tomorrow, and as you and I both know, that's the time when animals talk. Do they? said the younger, older brother. They do. You know they do. Anyway, the thing is, there's always been talk of treasure here on this land. And if anyone knows where it is, it'll be that old donkey, or maybe even that old ox. So, when midnight chimes are nearly here tomorrow, I'll come by the stable, well, call it a stable, and hear what the animals have to say. And don't you dare listen. If I hear what I want to hear, then I'll consider, you know, knocking a bit off the rent. The older brother agreed. And when Christmas Eve rolled around and the sun had gone down, he finished his usual duties by bedding down the animals in the stable with an extra bale of hay. And he took his tin mug and filled it with his best apple scrumby cider and planted it in the cinders of the fire to warm before heading out to the orchard to feed the lovely, delicious cider to the roots of the apple trees. As he poured out the warm scrumpy and the trees sucked up all the mould goodness, he wassailed, which is just an old country way of saying, sang, quietly but tunefully, Here see ye me apple tree, and many apples shall we see. O apple tree, I wassail ye, bags full, hats full, bottles of fruit for tea, stand fast root, bear well top, bud and let your beauties drop. Sadly, this storyteller couldn't carry a tune in a bucket, so you'll just have to imagine the older brother singing to his trees. Once the song was finished, the older brother turned to go back to his cottage and heard a really unearthly, squelching, rustling, gloopy sound and span round to see the roots and the branches of the biggest tree standing tall and proud, a big, creaky wooden man with a grinning, russet face. Oh, thanks for this grumpy, said the apple tree man. You've been very good to me looking after my roots and that dear old donkey and the ox, so, you know, I'm going to do you a favour. A good turn for the season. Take a look down in my roots. And when he looked down in the roots, he could see a hole in the ground, he saw a big bucket of gold coins, enough money to last several lifetimes. Ah, wherever they're from, old lad, said the apple tree man. They're yours now, but please don't tell anyone how you came across them, and keep them for yourself. You deserve them. The apple tree man lifted a leafy bough, tapped the side of his nose wisely. The older brother took the gold, and the apple tree man settled his roots back into the ground with a big thank you to the older brother. Don't mention it, came the reply. You go and wake up that little brother of yours, now it's nearly midnight. And before I go, Merry Christmas. And with that and a final grin, the apple tree man closed his eyes and settled back down into the earth, and became just an old apple tree again. The younger brother pushed his older brother off to bed once he arrived at the stable. He wanted to be sure he was the only person that knew the secret of the treasure. Treasure, which he didn't know, his older brother had already stuffed in his sock drawer. Therefore, the younger brother was all alone as the midnight chimes carried on the chill air from the nearby village church. And he looked around the shed and saw the donkey and the ox comfy. The donkey brayed and he found he could understand him. Ah, look! It's that young lad wanting to know where the treasure is. And the ox laughed as well. Yeah, he's out of luck though, isn't he? Greedy old sod. Because he won't ever get it. A better man has found that treasure already.
No one knows for sure exactly how Ned reacted to watching the animals laugh at him, but he must have passed out cold, because when he came to, his hair had turned white. The best change, however, was that he was never cruel to his brother again, and the next day, on Christmas Day itself, the two of them sat down to a fine roast goose, and swore to be good brothers. Although, to be honest, the older brother had always been a good brother, so... But in the spirit of Christmas Day, they agreed that they were going to be good to each other for that day forward. And that is the end of these tales. I hope you enjoyed them, gentle listener, for they had no other purpose. If you're just here for the stories, now's probably a good time to leave us. However, if you would like to know the results of the trouble with Trifle, you're very welcome to stay. I must start, however, by confessing this isn't only just about Trifle. I truly wanted it to be, but I hadn't considered the complete lack of folklore connected to trifle. There are no ceremonies, nothing, not one. It's not mentioned on any important occasions. It isn't even just a Christmas dish, although it has become closely associated. It does have a good long history though, so there is that. But I needed to bring in another traditional festive food to add the touch of folklore that this season demands. I bet you can guess. Yes, you're right. It's Christmas pudding. I'll start by saying that I love Christmas pudding and enjoy making one, but I have absolutely no intention of making up my own recipe. I use Nigella's absolutely wonderful one and I'd recommend it to anyone. We don't have a family recipe. As far as I remember, my nan bought hers. It just doesn't appear in my Christmas memories. Mum's been known to make one and I'm pretty sure she used a Julia recipe. I sometimes make her one now and she buys one the rest of the time. Trifle, on the other hand, we have lots of lovely family memories about, so I think I'm still justified in talking about it. But we'll start with Christmas pudding and its folklore and history. Did you know that the mixture should contain 13 ingredients to represent Jesus and the Apostles? Also, that the holly on top represents Jesus' crown of thorns? No, me either. It seems a lot of symbology to something that only appeared in a format that you could put holly on and actually became called Christmas pudding in 1836. There had been plum pudding and boiled pudding prior to this, but they didn't receive the name of Christmas pudding until around then. Anyway... I'm getting ahead of myself. Christmas pudding comes from a dish much older than that, which we'll get to shortly. However, we have some folklore to get to. The charms. These seem to have come across wholesale from the Twelfth Night Cake, which couldn't have happened until the pudding became the more solid format. We really lost the Twelfth Night Cake then, although it still appears as what we now call Christmas cake. But back to the charms. They're usually silver charms, which suggest the yearly outcomes for those receiving them with their portion of pudding. A thimble meant spinsterhood, the button meant the recipient would remain a bachelor, the ring meant a wedding, a horseshoe, good luck, and a coin for good fortune. This still remains as a custom in some families now, but most often just include a silver sixpence, if they include anything at all. The remaining folklore around the pudding is that everyone present in the household when it was prepared should take a turn to stir the pudding and make a wish before it was boiled. The pudding should be stirred east to west. You knew that compass app on your smartphone was useful for something. In memory of the Magi and the direction of the journey they took to visit the Christ child. This usually happens on Stir-Up Sunday. The name comes from the collect that appears in the Anglican service on the last Sunday before Advent, which starts, Stir-Up, we beseech thee, O Lord. It's not named after the pudding ceremony, sadly, but the two became connected in the Victorian period. So, to history. Even for food history, it's a bit of a tricky one. We can probably say the dish we know as Christmas pudding evolved out of a fruited spiced wheat porridge, which dates back in some form to Roman times. The first mention of stewed broth appeared during the 15th century, about 1420, and gained the prunes or plums during the Elizabethan period. I've mentioned before that these were so popular they became the shorthand for most dried fruit, even if later versions didn't contain any. 
There are recipes for stewed broth with alcohol added in 1596, and by 1660, Robert May was suggesting a version with wine and sugar added from part of the menu for Christmas Day as a starter. The latest recipe we find is from Hannah Glass in 1747. E. Smith doesn't include it in her 1773 version of The Complete Housewife, but there is a good boiled pudding which bears a strong resemblance. In 1810, Marianne Rundell has a plum pudding, which is very familiar, and Margaret Dodds has both a plum pudding and a super fine plum pudding, and by 1845, Eliza Acton is calling her recipe Christmas pudding. The pudding had moved firmly into its current incarnation, and Nigel Slater, our own wonderful Nigel Slater, bases his own recipe on Eliza Acton's. The tricky part comes from the fact that the first plum pudding, which is in a familiar form, has been identified as 1604, although it was balled in something less savoury than a pudding cloth. This was from the receipts of Eleanor Fetty Place and does suggest that the plum pudding was also being cooked by others around that time. There's nearly a 200-year crossover period where people were eating both, although probably not in the same meal. The pudding, as Charles Dickens mentions it, had become popular because it could be said to epitomise Christmas and most people could afford to make one as the ingredients were not expensive and the form of cooking was available to most. It was also an excellent way to fill up those whose Christmas main course was less than stellar. Dickens himself promoted it as the spirit of Christmas for that reason. One last thing about Christmas pudding. The dish proved so popular in the Devon village of Paynton that its citizens concocted a giant communal pudding in 1819. It contained 120 pounds of raisins, an equal amount of suet, or beef fat, and 400 weights of flour. When finished, the enormous pudding weighed 900 pounds. Who struggled to manage something similar to that was trifle. So... That's a very brief guide to Christmas pudding, folklore and history, and we can happily move on to trifle without any guilt at all. Firstly, where does the word come from? It's believed to come from the Middle English trifle, which in turn, trophe, sorry, which in turn comes from the Old French trophe, which means something of little importance. It's also possible it's connected with fool, another desert of, dessert of whipped cream and fruit, and in historic recipes, the two terms can be interchangeable. I love trifle, and it's older than I supposed. The first recipe appeared in The Good Housewife's Jewel in 1596. It acquires thickening with rennet by Hannah Woolley in 1670. But it's agreed that the first recognisable recipe was in 1751 by Hannah Glass, where she introduces a top layer of syllabub. Syllabub at this point in time was a whipped mixture of cream, orange juice, fortified wine and sugar. Doesn't that sound wonderful? The recipe appears in several books after 1751, and eventually whipped cream froth does replace the syllabub, although it's often enriched. There's even a recipe in 1773 which contains jelly. Jelly is a bit of a contentious subject when it comes to trifle. Originally trifle would have been served separately from jelly, which would have been formed in wonderful moulds and shapes. However, it clearly sometimes appeared in the trifle, although it wasn't promoting recipes from 1829 and even Eliza Acton in 1860. Fruit does appear, although sometimes in the less elegant version of the recipe, as in Maria Rondell in 1810, who has recipes for an excellent trifle and a gooseberry or apple trifle. She also mentions a jelly layer in her 1842 edition, but suggests it's old-fashioned and can be omitted, although on no account should you omit any other ingredients. I don't like jelly in my trifle, and many trifle purists agree, but you can't say it doesn't have history. Technology can probably be held responsible for a lot of changes to trifle. Custard powder invented in 1837 resulted in a lot firmer layer of custard and became popular during rationing of eggs in the Second World War as it didn't eat eggs and has remained popular ever since. The availability of tin fruit, easy to make jelly, the concentrated cube arrived here in 1932, and ready-made cakes that could be sliced for the trifle mean that there are now more varieties than there are households, although the sherry trifle remains Britain's most popular ready-made trifle. You can see why something that's relatively easy to make and looks spectacular, would make it to the Christmas menu. 
I found so many wonderful historic recipes and these will all be available on the blog for your perusal. But my recipe for today is pear and ginger trifle and it has family folklore for me at least. I think my nan invented it but my mum says she found it in a magazine so even our family trifle has a disputed origin. It's wonderful and you can make it the easy way or the difficult way but the thing that must always be remembered is the flake for the top even if that results in you begging to the letterbox of your corner shop later on Christmas Eve. And that is the end of today's episode. If you'd like more information, or you want to look at the recipe, or you want to see some of the historic recipes that I've dug up, please go to my blog at www.hestiaskitchen.co.uk. The link will also be in the show notes. As this is Christmas time, and I really do need a break, this will be the last episode in this format for a few weeks. I will be releasing some collections of just the stories that I've released already this year that you might like to listen to. My next brand new episode, which contains, or will contain at least, stories, food and folklore, is due to be released on the 18th of January. I wish you a wonderful festive season, however you celebrate. Please relax, enjoy your loved ones if you can, and most of all, stay safe. Thank you for listening to this episode of Folklore, Food and Fairy Tales.